And now, if you would find your Bibles, please, if you brought your Bibles with you, wonderful. If you didn't, there should be one near you. In the pews. And please open it to the book of Colossians. Colossians chapter 2, please. Here's what the Word of God says. Colossians chapter 2, in verse 13. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh... God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This He set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. Father, what you did for us at the cross, through the gift and the willing sacrifice of your Son, should make us tremble. And I've known you and believed in you and heard the good news so many times that that song convicts and challenges me. Do I still tremble? I should. And this passage tells me and reminds me why. So help me. Give me grace to explain it. Help us all be moved by it. If someone here, Lord, has not enjoyed, is not certain that they have enjoyed the gifts that are described in those few words I just read, I pray that tonight they would have the wisdom and the humility to listen to you and tear down their pride and trust you, Jesus, as their Savior. In your name I pray. Amen. You could spend all your life thinking about what was happening at the cross. It's the center, really, of scriptural testimony. The Easter services, I'll show you in John's gospel, that Jesus said to people who did not believe in Him that they were doing a good job in searching the scriptures, but they did not acknowledge and refuse to see that All of the Scriptures pointed to Him, spoke of Him, and they do so with such stunning precision. Once you read those prophecies, I mean, it's it's absolutely astonishing. The place of His birth, the price Judas the traitor would receive as paltry payment for his, the greatest sin of betraying the Son of God to authorities that He would have gone to surrender to anyway. And the cross and the resurrection of Jesus stand at the center of the story. In fact, if you've read the Bible or at least familiar with its flow, once Jesus rises from the dead, the Bible wraps up rather quickly. There's not much more after that. There's just a little collection of of letters for the most part telling people who have experienced that historical reality, here's what we're going to do about it. Here's what that means for us in our daily lives, in our marriages 
in our friendships and the way we do our jobs and the way we treat our neighbors and the announcement of this good news to anybody around us. But the cross and the empty tomb stand at the center. And those few verses I just read to you tell you that what the Father was doing at the cross. It's all too obvious what Jesus is doing at the cross. He's dying. That's what it meant to be crucified. It was synonymous with death itself. It was inescapable death. The way the Romans had designed it, it was generally a very slow and painful death. It was always a public death. But it was death all the same. Once you were condemned to die, once the crucifixion and all of its torturous details began, there was no doubt what was going to happen to the man so condemned. He was going to die. And Christian art tells us and shows us in the artist's imagination what was happening at the cross of Christ. God himself, having taken on human flesh, that's the story of Christmas, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. The God-man is dying. They're killing Him. But because He is God and He is life itself, as I tried to explain to you on Sunday, He will willingly give up His life because He was born to die. In John's gospel, he says, no, no one takes my life from me. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to pick it back up again. Even before he died, Jesus predicted his own resurrection. And all of that is obvious because it, it happened in physical, literal human history. Ordinary people saw him die. Men who had loved him, one of whom had promised to die with him, ran from the scene of the cross but those few who remained, the women in particular, John the Apostle near the mother of Jesus, they all saw Jesus simply, brutally die. But God the Father is there too. Because Jesus also said in the Gospel of John, after announcing that He's going to lay His own life down because as God He has the authority to give it away and also authority to take it back, He's also going to say that that is the commandment, that is the charge he received from his Father, and this is why the Father loves him. The Father is with Jesus, always. He sends angels to announce and celebrate, sing over his birth. At his baptism, he says, this is my beloved Son. I'm well pleased with him. God is very obviously there because Jesus in death screams from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that's what I tried to explain to you Sunday, what was happening there. Jesus is taking my sins, the things I'm ashamed of, the things I would never tell another human being that are true of me. Jesus is taking those things and all the others and all the sins of the world, every evil human thought and deed. He's taking it all and dying as a sacrifice for the entire mess. Jesus speaks again, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. In other words, whatever happened 
when Jesus stood in my place and took my punishment, now Jesus is entrusting himself publicly again as he did at every moment through his entire human life to the Father. And he dies willingly. And in those few verses I read to you, Paul explains to an unlikely audience, uh, an audience of Gentile pagans, of idol worshipers, of people who had no expectation that there was, a, there was one true God in the world who made them, who wanted anything to do with them. Paul is explaining to them what God did for them, and I'm telling you what God did for us at the cross. Just a few verses. It took me less than a minute to read it, but it's packed with pictures, and they're pictures from an ancient world because we're quite literally reading somebody else's mail. You and I aren't Colossians. We're at least some of us Californians. So the pictures don't immediately make sense to us. There may be something there that we don't quite understand. I'd like to explain it to you because Paul was very deliberate. And he took pictures and metaphors from their world and tried to explain to the Colossians, this is what God was doing for you at the cross of Christ. Jesus is dying as a penalty for sin, but this is what the Father intended through it. And it's very possible that there are at least some of you who have come tonight because you think it's a good idea, or you wanted to honor a family invitation, or you're simply tired of telling your mother no. So here you are. Can I tell you that you stand on the edge of the greatest decision you could ever make? And my invitation to you before this is over is that you will trust Jesus as your Savior. Because this is much more than a good idea that some people have adopted to help them make sense of their lives. This is what God is doing for humanity at the cross of His own Son, so that you could have life. Look with me again in Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2, verse 13. It says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. Paul's telling them first their spiritual condition. He said, You're dead in your trespasses. In other words, God set up boundaries, rules, laws by which you must live, and you've trespassed. You ever seen a property with a sign, no trespassing? They're very popular where I'm from in Texas. Trespassers will be shot, survivors will be shot again, that sort of thing. <laughs> I've seen that sign. It exists in the world. I took it seriously. A trespass is running past a legitimate boundary. And Colossians says, Paul wrote to the Colossians, you ran past God's laws, you broke His bounds, and here's what it did to you, it killed you, it made you spiritually dead. And he says, you were also dead in the uncircumcision of your flesh, and there's the first of those old pictures. The Colossians are very far from Israel. They're not Jews. But the faith and the fame of Israel has gone throughout the world. Everyone knows in the ancient world that circumcision is the sign of the covenant. This tiny little, incredibly intimate, vulnerable 
surgery that is effected on little Jewish boys is a reminder to them and their families all their lives that God has made a promise to them. And it took Israel, it took the disciples of Jesus some very painful experiences to begin to understand what Paul's announcing here, that God loves more than Israel. He loves more than Jews. He loves the whole wide world. But the Colossians, before they heard of Jesus, were dead in trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh. And here's what God is doing at the cross of His own Son. When you were dead in trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, He made you alive with Him. So we're just reading the Bible together. What was it that God was doing at the cross of Christ? He was making you, Christian, alive with who? Who is Him in this case? He's making you alive with Jesus. At the death of His Son, God was actually giving you life. Because Jesus is going to die for sin, and then as the prophets promised, and as Jesus Himself promised, He's going to come back after three days, utterly and completely alive, to show historically that, this, that it was all true and the sacrifice had been received. What God was doing at the cross of Christ was giving you and me who believe in Jesus the life of Jesus. And the rest of this passage is just an explanation of how he did that and the benefits of it. When you were dead in the trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive with him and forgave us all of our trespasses. He erased the certificate of debt with its obligations that was against us and opposed to us and has taken it out of the way by nailing it to the cross. Two word pictures that would have been immediately familiar to the Colossians but escape us 2,000 years later because we keep debt in a different way. We keep records of debt in a different way and thankfully, by the Christian influence itself, crucifixion is no longer a part of this world. Paul is telling the Colossians, here is how God forgave you. He gave you life with His own Son by forgiving all of your trespasses, all the times you had sinned against God and gone beyond His boundary. He forgave you and He gives it to them in two beautiful word pictures right here. He erased the certificate of debt with its obligations that was against us and opposed to it. Because in the ancient world, they didn't keep track of debt the way you and I do with an app on our smartphones. I owe how much on the MasterCard? They didn't get printed statements. No, important debts were recorded by hand. They would make you sit down and write out in your own handwriting what you owed so that if there was ever any dispute, your own handwriting could be presented to you as witness against you. No, this is your debt. You wrote it. You signed for it. It's yours. All your life apart from Christ, you've been writing out a certificate of debt with its obligations that is opposed to you against God and other people. Anger, lust, lying, 
betrayal, cowardice, envy, gluttony, drunkenness, cruelty, a lack of compassion and unwillingness to forgive, bitterness in the heart that is strangling your family. All your life, you and I have been writing out by hand the certificate of our debt. Your debt is as personal and as unique as you are, but you have a debt with God and with other people. That's Paul's point. That's why your conscience is troubled. That's why people who, unless they have utterly desensitized themselves to the concerns and the needs of other people and the reality of God, so often feel guilty and do all kinds of crazy things to cope and forget the debt they owe. Paul says, you've been writing it out. And that certificate of debt gives you an obligation with God. It speaks against you to God. It is opposed to you. But here is what God did at the cross of His Son. He has taken it out of the way. And what that literally means is He's wiped it clean. It's like ink on parchment. That's the picture that Paul is after. Before the debt is settled and final, before final payment is called, God reaches across through the death of His Son and wipes your handwriting out. And He does more than that. He has taken it out of the way by, what's it say? Nailing it to the cross. Because one of the indignities of the crucifixion is when they killed you, they would publicly put your crime above you so that passerby could come by and curse you and shame you as you died. Oh, that's what you did? Good. I'm glad they caught you. Paul says we've all been writing out our own debt. Here's where people go wrong. They compare the debt they have with God with the debt that they imagine other people have with God and feel better about their debt because surely the other guy's is worse. May I suggest to you that comparing debts with God in the presence of other people will do you no good whatsoever? You'll answer for your sins. You'll answer for your debts. I'll answer for mine. But here's where the gospel steps between us and a just God. He doesn't make me answer for the debt because Jesus already has. And it's nailed to the cross of Christ. This is the marvel. This is what should move us to genuine tears if we have that emotional capacity in us to think that Jesus died on the cross as if He were the guilty party. So all those terrible things that I name, some of whom are real in your life, perhaps not all of them, but certainly some of that list resonated with you, or if you were that kind of person, made you think of someone else. But remember, don't think about them. You won't go to God with them. You will go to God alone. And one of two things will happen on that day. You'll answer for your debt or Jesus will. And your only way to have life is to have Jesus answer for you. Because the, Paul closes, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them and him. What's this about? 
Well, this is a little more complicated. The Colossians, among other things, had all sorts of religious ideologies swimming around them. Some of it involved the worship of angels. And they were being told by some, if you don't go all in with Judaism, you can never be forgiven. And others would say, you have to have a mystical experience mediated through angels, or you're not truly in the family of God. Paul says, no. When you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh without, having you, without requiring you to change anything about your body, God sent His Son to die on the cross as if He were the guilty party so that He could wipe your slate clean or if you want to look at it that way in His second image, nail it to His own cross as if He were guilty of all my sins and all of yours. And Paul says, you don't need angels to mediate for you. You don't need to worship or pray to angels. What was actually happening at the cross of Christ is that all the demonic forces that had tempted Jesus, that had tried to thwart God's plan, God disarmed those rulers. He disarmed those authorities, and He put them to open shame by triumphing, by winning, by having an overwhelming victory over those demonic forces in His Son, Jesus Christ. And that picture would have been familiar. It's completely gone from our world, but it's very familiar to them. Because in the ancient world, when a, when a general went out to war to defend his homeland, when he won he came back in a victorious parade leading captives before him to show the people in his hometown these were the people that would have killed you, but we won. They're embarrassed. They're ashamed that they ever took up the sword against us. They're in chains now because I have defeated them, and the point of the war is I have defeated them for you. You didn't have to go to war to set yourself free from your own sin. That's the invitation of religion. Religion invites you to wage war against your own nature and against your own sins so that if you work hard enough, do enough stuff, give enough money, say enough prayers, do whatever rules they've invented in that particular religion, then maybe someday you'll have victory. Paul is announcing that God had overwhelming victory through the death of His Son and gave you life by wiping out your debt and nailing it to the cross as if Jesus were the guilty one, and having done all that, he disarmed. It literally says in Greek, he stripped. He completely exposed, defeated, and humiliated all of those demonic forces who would have done Jesus harm and would do you harm. He put them to open shame because he won over them through the gift of his son, Jesus Christ. That's what God was doing at the cross, and it was all for you. And that's why we're celebrating communion, because that bread and that cup, those very simple little symbols, remind us of the greatest war ever waged and the greatest gift ever given. And in the name of Jesus, as just one simple forgiven sinner, in the name of Jesus, I invite you right now, if you don't know this Savior, trust Him. Tell him in prayer right now that you're tired of your sin, you're tired of your guilt, you're turning it all over to him, you're putting him in charge of your life, and you're accepting him as your payment and your boss. Let's pray. Friend, we may not have met 
a lot of people here. Forget about others. Think of yourself. Do you have that debt outstanding with God? If you do, cry out to Jesus. Tell him that you understood the word pictures. You want him to wipe your slate clean. You want him to make payment for your sins. You want him to win the war over everything that would do you harm and separate you from a just and good God. You don't need magic words. There's no ritual. There's no certain words that open up the mind and the heart of God. What does that is simple trust, simple repentance, turning away from yourself and turning to Him to say, Jesus, forgive me, a sinner. I'll take you as my payment. I welcome you as my boss, my Lord. Thank you for dying on the cross for me. Make me your disciple. Teach me, Lord, to love you and follow you. And Lord, if there's a single person here, or perhaps there are many who need to do that, I pray that they would now. That as countless others have, as these Colossians one day did, as I did, they would just get sick and tired of themselves and love and trust you bring you all their sin, all their guilt, all their failure, and welcome you, Jesus, as the full payment, the complete covering, the total satisfaction for everything they ever have or ever could do wrong. And Lord, as we move now to celebrate communion and take these simple elements, thank you. Thank you for your death, which we've remembered. Thank you for your body torn and blood spilled. In Christ's name.